All right, as those baskets are being passed, if you were here last week, you got to sit in on a real treat, did you not? Uh, Daniel Montgomery, uh, pastor of Sojourn Church in Louisville, was here speaking at our pastor's conference, and he preached for both of our services last week, and as one witnessed proclaimed, and I agree, he preached the roof off this place. And so if you weren't here, shame. No, if you weren't here, um, go online and listen. That, that sermon is up and available to you. Last weekend was an interesting weekend for us because after the Gilbert family, because after um, the pastor's conference was over, we had to, to, to hop up real quick like to Atlanta to meet um, my parents and to reclaim our van, which was just wrapping up its six-week vacation in Chattanooga from where it was being repaired. And, um, and, and by the way, saw my mom, and a lot of you have asked how she's doing, and thank you, first of all, for praying, encouraging us, and, and I think she's doing as well as could be expected. She's on her second round of, of chemo. Um, she's engaged with the Lord spiritually, and so we're, we're, we were encouraged to see them, and just thank you for, for, for praying. Um, but, but things are, I think, as well as could be expected. But while we were in Atlanta, Jack turned 12, and so I took him to his first NBA basketball game with see the Hawks play, who somehow were in first place in the Eastern Conference. I'm not sure how that happened. But anyway, we were there on Monday on Martin Luther King Day, and so as part of all the NBA festivities on that day, um, MLK Day was being celebrated. So there was a big gospel choir uh, before the game that was singing, and they had all sorts of things. But that whole weekend... You know, when, when hearing about Martin Luther King and his dream and his speeches, and if you've seen the movie Selma, I haven't seen it yet, but I hear it's really inspiring. And you think about his activism, there's just something, is it not true, that really culturally resonates for us in that, and personally resonates. And certainly it's about racial reconciliation and civil rights, that's all true. But I think there's something for Oaks that's even bigger than ourselves that resonates on times like this. It's really, I think what resonates is this idea that we can be for something bigger than our own lives. That, that God can take the actions of a few and literally change the world and people's lives through them. I'll be honest, I think that's one of the reasons why so many of you resonated with Daniel's sermon last week, because he was calling us, calling you, to think beyond your own life and for four oaks to think beyond our own life together. And there's something compelling. There's something that God has put in our hearts that wants to rally to something bigger than ourselves. And so here's a question for us as we open up Acts 13 this morning. Do you have a vision or a dream that transcends your own private world? Do you have a vision or a dream that transcends your own private world? You know, in Christian circles, we like to talk about having a, a vision for family or a vision for marriage. And, and men, if you don't have a vision for your family and, and marriage, go get one this afternoon. Okay, go, go immediately and do that. And that's good. And that's all, that's great. But here's, here's another question. Brooks, do you have a dream for this church? Do you have a dream for this city? Do you have a dream for what God could do through this church in this city, in this region? Do you have a dream of what God could do through Four Oaks for his kingdom and for his glory? Does that at all resonate in your hearts? I'll just be right up front with my agenda. In Acts 13, I don't want us to walk away and just say, that was just another one. Let's put it in the can and move on. 
Because I think in Acts 13, there is something compelling for us, Four Oaks. This is a church in Antioch that thought and dreamed beyond themselves. And God used them literally to change the world. Let's open up God's Word to Acts 13. We're in the middle, of course, of a year-long series through the book of Acts called Unconquered. And really, this is a decisive turning point in Luke's narrative. Because up to this time, the gospel had been mainly confined to this little piece of dirt in Palestine and Syria. Um, Jews were a part of this new Christian faith. Um, Gentiles were a part of this new Christian faith. But it was literally confined to a geographic area about the size of the panhandle, if that. Until the church in Antioch got it. They got it. And Four Oaks, I'll be right up front. I want us to get it as well. Because we're going to see a church that's not just on fire emotionally here, but a church that got it, where the gospel didn't just confine itself to this one area, but begins to explode geographically. And as it exploded geographically, it began to transform and change people's lives. So the title of this message, a, a, a very modest title, The Church That Can Change the World. How about that? Can we, can we, can we do that in 40 minutes? Um, I, I can't, but I think God can. I don't think this is proverbial pie-in-the-sky pastor speak. You know, pastors love to say, this is the greatest ever or the biggest ever. Um, the Bible calls that lying. But, but, but seriously, I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying there's something here for us. There's something here that's bigger and compelling. And we're not going to get it all in one day. It's going to take a long time, call it a life. <laughs> but I think it's what God has for Four oaks. So let's read in Acts 13, 12, 12 verses together. This is the word of the Lord, Four Oaks. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Barjesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of the Lord. But Elemas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, "'You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness,' Full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, 
And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Or for us, let's pray that we will be astonished at the teaching of the Lord this morning. Lord, I don't want people to be astonished with me. Um, I, I don't even want us to be astonished at one another. I want us to be astonished with you. Lord, we're, we've set a big agenda here, and, and, it's, and if we're honest, it's a lifelong agenda. But Lord, we think it's an agenda nonetheless that your word sets for us. We want Four Oaks to be a church that can change the world. But Lord, Four Oaks can't be a church that can change the world unless its people, its people are inclined to you and to your word. So Lord, do that work of grace in us. We commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Five, five marks, okay? Five marks of a church that can change the world. Number one, We'll have these behind us. A commitment to a leadership that is plural and not singular. You know, Antioch was a cosmopolitan hub. It was a motley sort of place, and the church reflected that. They even had a motley crew of leaders. Okay, now, now just listen to this bunch. We have Saul. Okay, he's an intellectual Jew. There's Barnabas, nice Barnabas, who is a priest. Simeon and Lucius, who undoubtedly are from North Africa, and they are, they are black, and they are, they are part of this hodgepodge. They have uprooted their lives to come to Antioch, and there's Menean, this upper-crust Gentile. This is, a, this is a pretty diverse crew, and when we think about where in the world we can go to find the oddest assortment of people all hanging out in the same place, it's either one of two places, right? It's either a sporting event or it's the church, Okay. Now, now the church though is different than a sporting event because in the church you actually have to have relationships with people, right? At football games, everybody gets to go home, and so you get to say goodbye to that obnoxious guy who sits has his season tickets next to you. All right. Not so in the church. That guy's in your fellowship group. Okay. Uh, it, not in my fellowship group, but maybe in your fellowship group. Because we had this OFI pastors conference last week, and it was just a crazy conglomerate of folk. I mean. We had young dudes like me. There was a lot of us young dudes. And then, of course, representing the aged was, was old man Dave Harvey. And you can tell him I said that. There was, I mean, I'm, this is serious. Black, white, Hispanic, poor, rich. The Anglicans, you could pick them out from a mile, mile away with their collars. The hipsters had their Tom's shoes on. And we, of course, openly mocked them for the lady men that they are. But, but many of us to be honest, just had absolutely nothing in common. These are not necessarily all guys that you would hang out with, but we did have kind of one thing in common. Jesus. Jesus. That's, that's the church. You look around this morning, it's like, you may not have a lot in common with a lot of folks in here, but we do have that in common. And that's what the church, that, that's how a church works. That's the only way a church can work because when horizontal realities dominate, okay? The gospel is diminished. And so when we look at this church in Antioch, there was a plurality and diversity, but, but not just ethnicity. And by the way, guys, ethnicity, um, a church will look, at, will look like who it hangs out with, by the way. So if you want, you want Four Oaks or wherever to be a more diverse place, 
You, you, that, that doesn't happen by me telling you to do that, okay? That happens through our relationships. And so a, a, a campus like Killarney is going to look a lot different than like our campus at Midtown. They're situated differently, but ideally you would want a church to look like the community in which it ministers. But, but there's another aspect to this diversity in play, and it doesn't have anything to do with ethnicity, but it has everything to do with gifting, Okay, everything to do with gifting. And it's so important that a church, the reason it's important, guys, that a church is diverse, not just ethnically, but also in age, socioeconomic status, kinds of jobs people have, places that people live, is because the body of Christ needs a diversity of gifts. That's how the body of Christ is built up. So look back at the text, verse 1. There's Barnabas. He's a priest. Barnabas is the son of, of encouragement. Barnabas is the guy you want by your hospital bed. Paul, not so much. Well, I don't know. I guess I would like Paul next to my, but Paul's like the debater and the orator and the philosopher. Then you've got these guys, these entrepreneurial dudes from, from Africa who've uprooted their lives. Then you've got the culturally suave, engaging Menean, and somehow God puts this whole hodgepodge together, and he says, guys, you, as different as you are, you've got one singular mission, one singular mission. He said there was prophets and teachers, and he goes, guys, here's your mission. Your job is to build up the church with the word of God, and, and not just in, in, in preaching like I'm doing right now but in the way that you speak to each other and how you meet and how you organize yourself. And, and, and let me tell you, Four Oaks, how we go about trying to apply passages like this in terms of our, uh, terms of our leadership. About two, two, year, two or three years ago, um, the leadership of this church, the elders, decided, you know, we want to set a course where on one hand, we do recognize gifted men. We, recognize, we want to apportion the gifts accordingly to build up the body. But we don't want to build the church around one central personality or gifts of a singular person because there are safety in numbers. That seems to be the case biblically. We want a team of gifted men, gifted in different ways, but unified around the same goal. And we want that goal, we want every person called a leadership to completely and totally saturate their ministry in accordance with their gifts, with the truth of God's word, whether that's in counseling or preaching or students or children or fellowship groups. Guys, that's one of the reasons why we don't have man on the screen, okay? I think personally my face could handle it, okay? My preaching, not so much, okay? But, but we, have, we have multiple preachers. We preach, we have Lance Olin who preaches at Midtown. Dave and I share the pulpit here. We have other guys that, that we work in. All of that, we believe, and guys, it's the road less traveled. Okay? It's not the evangelical model. The evangelical model says you need a dominant, charismatic, singular personality. Sorry, four hooks, you come to the wrong place. Okay, That will carry the church. That's what we need. Because there's a problem with that. And the problem is that ministries like that built around one singular person are rarely sustained. They're rarely sustained because... Men in isolation, have you noticed this, women, tend to what? Do stupid things, okay? They tend to go out of bounds. There, we think there are safety in numbers. And, and, and if you've kept up with any of the news 
with Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill Church and not to go into all that except to say, what an incredibly gifted man. Made such an impact on my podcast, probably yours, the books written, but it's a story of what happens when leadership and gifting is not shared. And Four Oaks, we are going to take the road less travel because we think there's blessing. Things are going to be a little more slow going. Um, things are, um, it's not the usual model for the evangelical church, but we think when we look at passages like this, it's biblical. We think that's shared leadership is important for a church who wants to make an impact, a gospel impact, because we have a long road ahead of us. Because we, bat, we, we oh, that was the Presbyterian coming out of me. We did not baptize anybody this morning. No, no. We dedicated these little ones. Because I, I want to see them all the way through. I want them to be, as long as God calls their families to be, I want them to, to see continuity. And I want them to be a blessing. And I want to have our lives vested in them as leaders and them and us. And guys, isn't that a good thing? That's a gospel thing. And it was characteristic of the church in Antioch. Okay, second, second mark of a church that wants to change the world. Posture of seeking the Lord. And that's the biggest no-brainer, verse 2. But is it? See, it says in verse 2 that the leadership, and by extension the whole church, was seeking the Lord in prayer and fasting and worship. And what's interesting about this is, is that it seems that this seeking of the Holy Spirit or God's leading was not a special season of prayer, although those are good. We've done those at Four Oaks, and we will do those. Um, 24 hours of prayer or seven, seven days of prayer, regular prayer. That's not what's happening here, though, the context seems to say. What's happening here is nothing unusual. It's just what they did. Their leadership and their people were in the habit of continually coming to the Lord and asking him, Lord, what do you want us to do? What do you want us to do as a people? What do you want us to do as a church? What do you want us to do as leaders? Because Four Oaks, there's, there's two dangers that churches will tend to fall off into. And, and, and by the way, this is the same danger you and I will fall off into in our own personal lives. And one is institutionalism, okay? Because churches become institutionalized when they no longer have a posture of seeking the Lord. They do things um, in the same way forever and ever with little or no self-awareness. You know, um, growing up, I was part of a great church, okay? Uh, First Presbyterian Chattanooga, Ben Hayden was our pastor. And, and, but he, he, had a, he had a fun way of poking fun at, at Presbyterians. And he said, you know, Presbyterians better do it right the first time because they will be doing it the same way for the next hundred years, okay? And that man did not lie, okay? Because when I went to worship services there in 1977, my wife can testify, they hadn't changed any by 1999, zero, okay? And it was a great church. But it, it does reflect the heart of what we see in this passage is that as a leadership and as a church, folks, we have to be committed to seeking out the Spirit of the Lord. Um, I cannot tell you how many times as a leadership we came into an elder meeting thinking this. That's code for I came into an elder meeting thinking this. And we wound up with something entirely different. And some of you may be horrified by that, okay? I call it the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And, and you need to have the assurance, folks, that your leaders prioritize this in prayer and seeking him and asking him, God, what do you want us to do? What do you want us to change? 
all those sorts of things. But here is my fear for us on a personal level. My fear on a personal level, and this is me and this is all of us, is that sometimes we can be functional atheists. And what do I mean by that? And, and you can kind of get at this by answering these questions. When it comes to personal decision-making in your life, do you feel like you're just kind of an autopilot? When it comes to your schedule, your activities, your life, your hobbies, your priorities, Four Oaks, do you have a mechanism for us submitting yourself and your life to the Lord so that if he wanted to redirect you, you could actually hear him and redirect yourself? You know, someone in the church recently, I was talking to them over lunch about a, a big job change they had and a, and a massive loss of income they were experiencing. And I was, I was kind of asking him, well, what's, what's the biggest struggle in this for you besides just kind of the, the obvious nuts and bolts? And he said, you know what, at one time, my wife and I were, we were just kind of an autopilot with our money. We just never had to talk about it. It was just everything was an auto draft and this, and we were saving that and spending that, and that's what we did. And, and now, like, we've got to, like, talk about, like, our money and stuff, and we've got to, like, engage on it. And I said, don't you see, that, that's a great thing. This, this, this cutback in your job, in your finances, is God's mechanism to get you to engage him to say, God, this is your money, not mine. What do you want me to do with it? Because it applies in all areas of our personal lives. Okay, now this, so there's a danger. One danger is institutionalism, but there's an additional danger, and that's on the opposite of the spectrum. It's individualism. And individualism basically says, I'm going to do what I want to do. Now, if you're a sports fan, um, the name Lane Kiffin might be familiar to you. He's, he's a young coach who's had about 29 football jobs in the last few years. Um, and he was actually the Tennessee coach for about an hour. Now, actually, he was a Tennessee coach for, for one year. And I remember seeing the ticker fly across the, the bottom of the screen on SportsCenter that he had left Tennessee literally in the middle of the night to take his dream job at USC, University of Southern California. And, of course, Tennessee fans being the very rational, even-tempered people that we are, uh, rioted and burned couches on campus in protest. But, um, do, and this is true. I can't tell you how I know this. I'd have to, I don't know, kill my, whatever. Anyway, I can't tell you how I know this. Do you know how Lane Kiffin's wife found out that he was going to USC? She found out the same way you and I did on the press release on ESPN and, and, and because he had determined he was going to do what he was going to do. And we laugh at this. I mean, we think it's kind of extreme, but is it? Is that really so extreme for some of us? Because I think there's a Christian version of this called, you know, God wouldn't deprive me of what I really want to do. God wouldn't deprive me of my dreams. You know, I'm just going to, you know, uproot my family, and I've got this thing that I've been hankering to do. You know, I've counseled, counseled guys where we really had to ask, is, 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 this, is this God's dream for your life, or is this your dream? As Four Oaks, there's a major difference of Abram going off into the distant country because of God's call, and then Abimelech taking Naomi and the boys to Moab. Because it says in Judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What's the antidote to individualism in your life and my life? And it, right here in the text, look, look again, verse 2, community. Community. 
God's will for this church and for Paul and Barnabas was revealed in community. It says that the Holy Spirit told them, we don't know what that means. Okay, I'll just, you know, commentators speculate. What does that mean? We don't know if that was an impression. I mean, the Apostle Paul did write most of the New Testament. I guess he was qualified to speak on these things. Um, we don't fully know, but, but, here, but don't get caught up into that. We don't, circumstance, money, God, wisdom, God uses all those things. But make no mistake, this was not Paul and Barnabas standing up in the middle of the meeting and saying, we're out of here. We've always had a dream to plant a church, and we're gone. Okay? That, is, that is not what happened here. The community of believers came together and said, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas. You know, um, Susan and I were able to, to meet with a couple a little while back where this couple was going through the same process of decision-making, a, a decision that would literally impact the trajectory of their lives. And as we listened to them unfold for us how they were engaged in that process, they were seeking counsel, they were meeting with their fellowship group and trusted advisors in their life, and they were sitting down with a pastor and submitting themselves. And we, it's not that we were the purveyors of all wisdom or anything in that context. They, it so encouraged our hearts that they had a mechanism for being led and directed by the Holy Spirit. Guys, in personal decision-making, we can make cataclysmic mistakes apart from wisdom and plurality. But when we have the stance of the church in Antioch as a leadership and as a people of submitting ourselves to him and saying, God, what do you want for me in this area? God, what do you want for us in this area? God, what do you want for our church? What do you want for our fellowship group? Don't be surprised when God leads. I'll, I'll be honest, a lot of times I think we're fearful of doing this. I'm fearful of doing this. I'm afraid of what God might say to do. I'm afraid of what God might say. And, and, and I'm just a functional atheist at this point. Before, there's great blessing in being led by the Holy Spirit. So that's Mark number two. Mark number three. Verse three, sacrifice for the mission. It says Holy, the Holy Spirit told him to set apart Barnabas and Paul, hence begins the greatest or one of the greatest missionary journeys, expeditions in the history of the church, what we now know as Paul's first missionary journey. And, and what is the first thing that should strike us for hoax about this passage? The church sent their best. The church sent their best. And, and, if, and, and in our carnal flesh, we could be very easy for us to say, why in the world would they do that? Things are going so well. This is the first Gentile church, after all, in Antioch. Um, this is a church of influence. This is like a rock star apostolic dream team, right? I mean, can you imagine being on a, on a staff or in a church with these five guys doing the preaching and teaching, we know that Antioch, Four Oaks, was the place where God's people were first identified as Christians. This, this church had it going on. They had their identity. They were impacting their community. And part of us just had to say, why in the world did they go and mess it up? Right? Why did they go mess it up? And two reasons. One, God told them. That's probably enough. Okay, God told them. But number two... It was always part of God's plan for what the church was to do, 
to fulfill the great commission. It was always part of God's plan. And guys, and this is so hard. This is so hard to wrap our minds around because in our insular world, we're always oriented to the way things might impact us. If I'm obedient to the mission, if, if Four Hoaxes is obedient to the Great Commission, what is that going to mean for me? Here, here's a great quote. One of the hardest things to do in a church is to mobilize the resources and people of the church to do something outside of the church that impinges on the comfort of people within the church. I think it's a great quote because it's my quote. Okay, so that's why so that, that I had them put that up there. You were like, that's going to be like Tim Keller. Or no, 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 no. Because um, you see, every church, no church is exempt. Every church is resourced differently, different gifts, station. No church is exempt from the call of Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. Um, a local church like ours is always going to have to deal with stuff, financial challenges, staffing, programming, uh, and, and those are important. And, the, and guys, there's always, here's the thing, here's what I learned as a pastor. There's always something which mitigates against being obedient to the Great Commission. In fact, the longer we go as a church, the harder it gets because there's more needs and more complexities and this, that, and the other. But as the church, as we see in the church in Antioch, they just sought the Lord, and the Lord led, and the Lord, and they gave it away. Because you realize how hard it would be to send out Paul and Barnabas. They just cut their leadership team in half. It undoubtedly required an immense amount of resources to send them on their way. How are ways at Four Oaks that we are applying this? Because, you know, um, Daniel Montgomery was here last week, and he talked a lot about the Sojourn Network. And it's a family of churches that unite their resources, okay, training, all that sort of stuff to plant churches. That, that is what the Sojourn Network is all about, helping pastors plant, grow, and multiply healthy churches. And the reason, and, and we have been pursuing an emerging partnership with the Sojourn Network. Um, Dave Harvey, one of our pastors, serving on their board. And the reason is that we look at passages like Acts 13 and say, that's not optional. That's not optional. This is one of the ways we want to express our commitment to the Great Commission. We want to plant churches. And, and to help wrap our brains around this, in your booklets, if you have your booklet, you can look in there. There's a little, there's a little article by the Pope of Evangelicalism, Tim Keller, okay, about why plant churches. It's a great little article. And men, I invite you next Sunday night at 6.30, just turn the TV off and dive into this. Okay, all the men know what's next Sunday night, 6.30. He talks about how new churches are best at reaching new generations. New churches are best at reaching the unchurched, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Guys, we want some of that. We, we want to get on board that. We think that's one of the ways God will use Four Oaks to change, shall I say, at the world. A second way, because we are committed to a multi-site model because we believe, just like churches, new campuses are better at reaching um, People, new people. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. People are more likely to go to, to a church that's smaller sometimes when they're new. Um, 
you know, a lot of times, guys, a campus or a church, I mean, when, when you're an established church, you're always balancing the needs of the people here and the people out there. In a church plant, there are no people in here, right? Okay, you're trying to reach the people out there. And so by God's grace at Midtown, we have 250 people or something worshiping there, people who've never been to Killarn, people who aren't going to drive 25 minutes across town, or people who aren't going to go to an established campus or whatever. And so about three years ago, we decided we wanted to, we're going to pillage Killarn. Did you know we were pillaged? <laughs> we sent resources, we sent people, we sent manpower, and it's been hard, and it's taken a while for Killarn to kind of get its feet back again and begin growing again. Um, but you know what? It's, it's totally worth it. Because Acts 13 in the church in Antioch tells us it's good to say no to things, good things, for the sake of saying yes to better Four Oaks, how is God calling you to sacrifice for the mission? Maybe in your fellowship group. Maybe it's time to start a new group. Um, maybe it's time to, to multiply and divide. Some of your fellowship groups, you couldn't get a new person in there with a shoehorn, okay? Maybe you need to get a stick of dynamite and blow it up, okay? In the name of Jesus, of course, okay? Sacrifice for mission. Two things. We're going to go through these last two quickly. A prophetic voice over culture, fourth thing. Because there is something really fascinating about the way Paul and Barnabas did ministry with the Word of God. They were equal opportunity offenders. Okay, look, look at where all they went in this, looking at verses 4 through 12. They went to the Jews in the synagogue, which is the religious folk. They went to Bar Jesus, who was this false prophet who had all these connections and influence with common people. So they went to the public square. It says they went to the proconsul Sergius, this intellectual and political elite. Guys, the word of God knows no bounds in Paul and Barnabas' ministry. You know, and this, there is something for us to really learn as a church and as a people about this. Because, see, in our culture, guys, religion is okay, but you just better keep it private. Okay, do not bring that junk into the public square. You can say what you want in your home for the time being. You can say what you want in church. That time is quickly drawing to a close, by the way. But just keep it private. Now, before I say what I'm about to say, please understand the church is not a, primarily a political reality. It's not even secondarily a political reality. God's kingdom is not attached to a specific political party. However, we must not mute God's concerns or God's word over concerns that will offend the cultural elites. Okay, let me just use an example. Guys, today is Right to Life Sunday. And we know over the past months there's been a lot of racial tension in our country, a lot of high-profile events, and a lot of Christians, God bless them, speaking out about racial inequality, as we should, and that's something that certainly our culture resonates with. However, for folks, we cannot be silent about another racial injustice being committed today that is far greater than anything that has happened with police officers or African-Americans dying, as significant as that is, and as much as we should speak into it. What I'm talking about is the, and I'll call it this, the genocide of black 
babies by abortion. Because over 57 million babies have been aborted since 1973. That's an estimate because California won't release their abortion statistics because they know how horrifying it would be. But did you know out of those 57 million, one-third, one-third of those by black women, 19 million black babies. Did you know that over 40% of abortions in New York City are to black women? Do you know that more black children are aborted than born in New York City? And so we have President Obama in the State of the Union address threatens to veto the bill that would outlaw abortions not, not after eight weeks or six weeks or 12 weeks, after 20 weeks, five months. And for those of you who have lost children in the womb, you know you are not mourning an unviable tissue mass. Republican Congress is no better. They decided not to vote for that bill at all, out of fear. It was a political calculus about keeping their caucus together and keeping them in power and not turning off women voters, heaven forbid. Folks, it is a moral outrage. And we must speak to it. And guys, I don't have to tell this church you've got to act too because this is a church, by God's grace, that puts its money where its mouth is. This is a church caring for women, volunteering at the pregnancy center. This is a, this is a church that is adopting, and by God's grace, we need to continue to do so donating, giving. But make no mistake, because the church that speaks to these things, God, yes with wisdom, yes with grace, yes with humility, yes with winsomeness. But you know, Paul wasn't exactly a winsome man in this passage, was he? Paul needed to have a class on winsomeness. But you know, here's what happened when Paul, this is a fascinating thing, then we'll go to the last point. Paul, as Paul and Barnabas, folks, took the word to the public square, and I believe this is the same when you take the word to the public square, whether that's your neighbor or your friend or your coworker or, the, or your son's friend's parent on the, on the t-ball team or, or whatever. Here's what happens. It says in this passage that bar Jesus begins to go blind, but simultaneously something else marvelous happens. Sergius Paulus begins to see. See, that's what happens with the gospel. If we are waiting for the culture to embrace us, guys, we, that day will never come. Okay? The gospel offends. But make no mistake, the gospel saves. The gospel transforms. The gospel gives life. And it's our job to take it to the public square, wherever, wherever that calling is, and leave the results to God. And that's the church and a people God uses to change a world. Last point, very quickly, and we're done. A willingness to put aside preference. Because it says in this, in this, it's almost incidental in this passage, but I think it's incredibly significant. In verse 9, look there. It says that Saul changed his name. And, and you may say, well, what's the big deal um, about changing a name? And just ask Chad Johnson, okay, who changed his name to Ocho Cinco. Or, or the guy in the now defunct XFL, his name is He Hate Me. Okay, so just, just okay, put that in the context for a second. 
It says Paul changed, Saul changed his name to Paul. See, Saul was his Jewish name, okay? That was his card-carrying name. That's where he gained interest into the synagogues and the, the Pharisee study groups, and that was his ticket. But see, Paul was not going to minister to the Jews anymore. He was going to the Gentiles, and so he named, changed his name to the Greek version of his name. And that may not be a big deal to you, but it was a huge deal in that culture. You see, names communicated something then. Names were part of your identity. They communicated your background, your status, your standing. By changing his name, Paul was making a very definitive statement. I'm putting aside my preferences and my comforts for the sake of mission and the gospel. Paul was introducing a massive disruption into his life. Never would he be that card-carrying Pharisee who could gain entrance into any Pharisaical party. His name was Paul. He was going to the Gentiles, and it was over. His former way of life is done. You say, Pastor Paul, has God asked me to change his name? Not exactly, but I will ask you this question. What is the equivalent of a name change for Oaks in your life? What's the equivalent? What's the preference that God is asking you to set aside, whether it's your schedule or your routine or who you invite over for dinner or what you do on Sunday afternoons or your sporting event routines or your school activity? I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. But where is God asking you to, to set aside your preference that will undoubtedly introduce inconvenience for the sake of of mission. What is that for you? Before, I am totally convinced as we run hard after these five things, God will, God will make a gospel impact through us. It's a lifelong project. We're not going to bite it all off today, but by his grace, let's get moving in that direction.